I do think that there is a degree to which you have to build a sense of empathy for other people. It doesn't, doesn't necessarily come naturally. And so I think that it's not necessarily the case that everyone cares equally because some people are more empathetic to others, especially when you start talking about others who may be on the other side of the world. It's very easy to be empathetic to your children or to your spouse or to your parents. To say that I should be empathetic about someone on a different continent, it, it seems like it might as well be empathetic to somebody on Mars. But there is a shared humanity there. To the extent that we think about those people, just like we might think about people living in other times as being other than human in some sense, we have to keep ourselves from falling into the trap of thinking about other people living in our own time as being other than human, just because they live in circumstances that may be very different from my own. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. My next guest is friends with the guy who built the online white nationalist community Stormfront. He's also an observant Orthodox Jew. His name is Matthew Stevenson. You may have heard about him because the pair, him and the other guy, Derek Black, made headlines and appeared on The Daily Show, Krista Tippett's On Being, and shows like that. Matthew and Derek Black made headlines because Matthew invited Derek to Shabbat dinner. This was when they were in college together. They became friends. Derek eventually disavowed his earlier beliefs in white nationalism. In today's episode, Matthew shares his side of the story. Most of the interviews feature more about Derek. He's the one that will get more ratings. But I find Matthew's initiative and leading to be more engaging and more inspiring for people who want to influence others, especially to do things that they probably feel is wrong, but aren't really sure. So comparing how the mainstream approaches people that they disagree with, like things like punch a Nazi or saying others just don't care, comparing that with Matthew's approach, I don't think many people realize how effective Matthew's approach can be. I expect usually a lot more effective than the standard approach. I mean, think about with the environment, how people talk about Trump or the Koch brothers. They don't think about befriending them. So I could describe Matthew's technique, but Matthew has lived it, in particular in a situation with as diametrically opposed views as you can imagine. So let's listen to Matthew. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Matthew Stevenson. Matt, how are you doing? Doing great. How are you? I'm very good. And if it's okay with you, I'm going to start this off the way almost all the times I've seen many interviews of you. I guess I first heard of you from a friend told me about you on Krista Tippett with Derek. And that's what, that was my first introduction. And most of the introductions begin with Derek because he's like the more kind of um, dramatic character, I guess, at first glance. But I think you're the more, you know, this is the Leadership in the Environment podcast. And for most people, it will not seem obvious how this connects to the environment. But on the leadership side, to me, this is very, I think for a lot of people, it could be game-changing and how, what they think of is how they can influence others and how they can lead others. So Derek Black was raised as a whole cloth white supremacist and started the, the Stormfront webpage and got that going, went to college and I think wanted people not to know who he was, his background, but it kind of got out a little bit. And this weird thing happened that this Orthodox Jewish guy from, I think, downstairs in his dorm started inviting him over for Shabbat dinners. They became friends. Ultimately, Derek disavowed his upbringing and recognized it for what it was and, and changed. And the two remain great friends. You are this Orthodox Jewish guy who was downstairs from him in the dorm. And I don't think I've really heard your 
what it was like from your side. I mean, sort of like the friendship part, but like how you heard about him and things like that. I, I'm sure I glossed over a whole lot of important stuff. How was it from your perspective? When you went to college, did you ever expect anything like this? When you heard about this guy upstairs, what was it like from your perspective? Sure. So my freshman year, I was in dorms and I, I lived actually upstairs from him in the dorms, but the dorms opened to the outside. So if I opened my front door, I could see his front door, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. And as you might imagine, no, I didn't, I didn't expect to ever encounter a leader in the white nationalist movement in my college. So no, I didn't expect that. Uh, and at first, I, I didn't know that that's who he was. As you indicated, he was keeping that part of his identity very much a secret, very intentionally. So really, when I first got to know him, it wasn't over race or religion at all. It was actually over music. He played guitar, and he used to sit downstairs in the dorm and play old country and Western songs on his guitar. And I would uh, sing along poorly from time to time. You in his dorm room or for, across the window? In sort of a common area in the dorm. So you'd have you know, some tables in the you know, bench-type tables in the common, in the quad, let's call it. And mm-hmm. he would sometimes sit out there playing his guitar, and once in a while I would go out and join him or, I remember one time on Halloween, I think, we, we watched, a couple of us were hanging out and decided to watch Zombieland in his room. We, had, of course, at that time had absolutely no idea about his ideology or his life's work up to that point. He just can play good chords. He played really nice chords and sang a lot better than I did. Uh-huh. Uh, in fact, he, I mean, he had paid gigs playing and singing music, so he was very talented. It, it is very talented still. So that was really our first uh, encounters. And I wouldn't say that we were close friends at the end of those encounters, but we were friendly. We were on good terms. We'd been in a class together and we had shared some notes for that class. So we knew each other. And importantly, as a result of those encounters, I had his cell phone number. Mm -hmm. The next year, so uh, I should say the next semester. So the next semester, he actually studied abroad. And that was the spring of our first year there. And while he was abroad, someone who was researching white nationalism noticed a familiar face in a photograph. Derek uh-huh. at that time had long red hair and kind of stands out. And there was a school with only 800 students. So everyone, at the very least, knew what everyone else looked like. Uh-huh. And as soon as that connection was made, it was the only thing anyone at the school could talk about, as you might imagine. This guy who was here, who's away for the semester. Everyone knew him, and you know, everyone knew him, but they didn't really know him. I mean, uh-huh. It was a incredible drama, let's put it that way. And he was abroad, and so in some sense, it was a drama that he was not even a participant in because he wasn't there to respond. And it took a while. I don't remember the exact timeline, but it took a while before we even got a response from Derek. So it was really a. There were a lot of questions. Oh, what does he really believe? He had done these things in his youth, but he'd grown up. It's important to realize that he'd grown up in a household of... David Duke and... Uh, Dave, you know, David Duke was his godfather and was his mother's ex-husband. His father, Don Black, had been the leader of the Klan and had founded the Stormfront uh, website, which is, I think, the first uh, white nationalist website. And at one time, if not still, the largest. And so growing up in that environment, I don't think it would be a surprise to anyone that Derek would come to those kind of views, just like my views were influenced by my parents. And I'm sure your views were influenced by your parents. Mm -hmm. So there was a big question 
we hadn't heard him say any of these things at New College, at our school. Maybe he didn't really believe those things anymore. He had gone to college and was no longer living at home and was finally able to express himself outside of that familial orbit. So maybe those views were, you know, just his parents' views. So there was a big question mark. Turns out, actually, they were his views, but that was the that was, it wasn't so clear. There were a lot of possible interpretations. So he's like 17, 18 years old at this point, 19 maybe? He was a little older. He was, I think, I think he was 20 because he, even though we entered the college at the same time, he had done an associate's degree at a community college while living at home and then transferred in. So uh, we started at the same time, but he's a couple of years older than I am. Okay. So he's had a chance to... I don't know what you can say about how a person doesn't choose how they're raised. You can't choose how you're taught. Somewhere around 18, 16, 20, the responsibility for your views starts shifting over to yourself. So he's somewhere in there, but he's not like 40, but he's still not 10. Absolutely. And there was a big question about what he, because of course you would see things that he had done, but, you know, for example, he had created the Stormfront Kids page. Well, he had done that when he was a, when he was a, probably 13 or something. I don't know exactly, but something like that. So it was long in the past. And do you, do you really criticize them? But then people also realized he had a radio show that was ongoing uh, with his father. And David Duke was a, a frequent guest. I think it was called the Derek and Don Black Show. And as you might imagine, this is a radio show that you know, has a very niche audience. You know, this, is not, <laughs> you know, this is not the, <laughs> you know, the country radio station. You know, this is a real uh, particular crowd. To be honest with you, it was probably the most boring thing I've ever listened to in my whole entire life. I, I um, tried listening to some to figure out what his views were. I couldn't get through the I just I couldn't do it. Um, not because they were so virulently racist, just because it was very boring. But by the time the semester ended, we still really didn't know his views. Because it was during it was probably April or so of that semester that uh-huh. this came to light, because it was during the Passover holiday, which is what I recall. And so we broke for summer break, probably May or June, and still really didn't know. And in the fall, Derek was scheduled, of course, to be coming back to the campus uh-huh. because his study abroad was over. But there was also a big question. He'd been intentionally keeping his identity secret. Now the cat was out of the bag. Unbeknownst to him. Well, I think, he, you know, it was, it was known to him. It was, very, okay. it, was, it was very, very known to him that the cat was out of the bag. It was, there was, in particular, at the school, there was an online email forum. So you only students, no faculty, no administrators uh, had access, but all of the students did. And so as soon as the first person who had noticed his photograph associated with white nationalism had realized it was him, he had posted it on the forum and there had been, I don't know how many hundreds of messages, but it was by far, by far the most discussed thing that was ever discussed on there. Uh-huh. Derek was aware of the, okay. of the issue. And I didn't know if he would come back or not. In fact, it was interesting. I knew that he was scheduled or he had been planned. It was a school where almost everyone lived on campus. Fair. In fact, you had to get permission, even as an upperclassman, to live off campus. And so he was planning on living in the dormitory with a couple of people who were friends of mine. And I heard that he was no longer going to be living on campus with them because he had, they had been notified that he was no longer going to be rooming with them. So I actually reached out to him to see if he needed a place to stay. Because I didn't know if it was just that he, you know, maybe he didn't have money for a place or I didn't know exactly the circumstances that led to him doing that. But I just, I'd known him before and I wanted to make sure he was okay. And he ended up moving off campus with the intention of continuing his education there, but didn't want to have the kind of 
problems or harassment that he might have experienced had he lived on campus. And, and I should add, in many ways, the harassment he experienced whenever, whenever he was on campus from then on. You mentioned that I uh, an observant Jew, and there, frankly, were not many of them at New College. In fact, I was probably, depending on your definition, the only one. And I had been hosting these dinners every Friday night. We call Shabbat dinner. Shabbat is the Hebrew word for the Sabbath. And these were open to anyone who wanted to come. Jewish, not Jewish, religious. White supremacist. Not religious. <laughs> well, that was the twist. You know, yeah. That was probably not in the original uh, charter. But um, I thought to myself, going back to my earlier point, Derek has grown up in this environment of white nationalism really his whole life. His, I mentioned his mother used to be married to David Duke. His uh, father ran the clan afterwards. David was his godfather, and it would, they were very close growing up. So I think that it was not a huge logical leap to think that uh, this probably influenced his views in a dramatic way. But not mm-hmm. only that, but that growing up in that environment, he may not have had many opportunities to interact and develop relationships with the sorts of people that that ideology of white nationalism really despises Jews, people of color, etc. And not only that, but given his commitment and ongoing commitment to that worldview, I figured once he graduates from college, probably never have an opportunity to develop those relationships again. Mm-hmm. It's not a great th- career move in white nationalism to start befriending Jews and going to Shabbat dinners. <laughs> and so I thought maybe here, because I had a relationship with him before, and we'd had a very positive relationship. It had never been acrimonious at all, despite the fact that I wear you know, a funny little hat uh-huh. and not. So this is audio only, but he was indicating the keypad he's wearing. Yeah. Oh, that's right. I forgot that it's only a, only a auditory audio. podcast. But I thought I may have kind of a unique opportunity because of that. And if I didn't take the opportunity then, there may not be an opportunity down the road for someone else to do something similar. So I, I didn't feel like I had the option to pass. And I brought this up with some of the people at the dinner uh, who are like regulars. One person, Moshe Ash, who was a uh, regular, he and I spoke about it at great length and he was very supportive and maybe even instigating the idea. And some people were frankly much less supportive to the extent that many people more or less gave an ultimatum. It was either Derek or them. And if he was going to come, they, they would just as soon stay home. Even for just one time? They didn't want to interact with him. They didn't want to be seen as giving a safe space to a neo-Nazi or a white nationalist or anything like that. And while I respected their views, and they certainly had every right to behave in you know, wherever they felt safest, I thought that the opportunity maybe to develop this relationship was too much to pass up. Mm-hmm. And so I invited him anyway, and he came and many people who were regulars stopped coming. Did you ask your family about it or was it just people at school? I don't think I asked my family. I certainly didn't ask my family for permission. Mm-hmm. Bear in mind when I say inviting him over, this is to my dorm room. I was four hours away from where my family lived. So it wasn't like I was inviting him into my family's home. Mm-hmm. I don't think I concealed it from my family, though. And when I did discuss it with my family, I don't know if I discussed it with them before the first invitation, but when I did discuss it with them, they were very supportive. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, I was just curious how, to what extent you 
sought other people's views and to what extent you're just like, oh, let's just do it. See what happens. I think that if you start to ask for too many people's views, you can talk yourself out of things. Mm -hmm. Right? Because it would be very easy in a situation like that for me to say, you know, I have a group of friends. We have these wonderful evenings together every week. I don't really want to lose that. And I certainly don't want to lose them as friends. Some of them, even my roommates, you know, it was a little awkward. Some of the people who were refusing to be there, if he was there, were actually my roommates. So it was mm-hmm. their dining room as well as it was mine. And I don't think that we should take lightly the notion that we're kind of driven towards the path of least resistance. And the path of least resistance was to never speak to Derek again and continue doing what I had been doing. So you're swimming upstream to do this. It, it, I'm reading... That there's a bit of, of uh, I mean, you're saying there's one opportunity. He may never have, there may not be another opportunity for him to get this outside community influence. Also for you, it sounds like there's an opportunity, a one-time opportunity for you to see what you could do. Because I don't know what you, I don't know what you thought might happen. But I mean, if, am I reading too much into it that you're acting on your values in the face of adversity? Or is it just more like, I think if you see something that you think is the right thing to do and you're well-grounded in that belief, in other words, it's not, at the end of the day, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So there are a lot of people with good intentions that end up doing all sorts. I'm sure David Duke, in his mind, thinks what he's doing is the right thing, even though it's destructive and harmful. But at the same time, in this context, I felt I very strongly that what I was proposing to do was the right thing. I saw some risks. I won't lie. I saw some risks. In particular, I was concerned that I might be used as a almost as a, a shield in the future against any accusations because what the white nationalist movement or white nationalist groups have done over time in uh, a bit of branding is to say they're not about hate, they're about heritage. They're not about hating anybody else. They're just about being prideful and loving of themselves or their own you know, ethnic community. In fact, sometimes they even compare themselves and say, you know, why can you have the NAACP, but not the NAAWP? Uh-huh. Well, I think that even a casual observer will notice the insanity of comparing the Klan to the NAACP. Uh-huh. But nevertheless, if Derek was being raised to be the leader in that movement or a leader in that movement, which he absolutely was, it would be a potential asset to him to be able to say, look, of course, I'm not anti-Semitic. Look at my Jewish friend. How many anti-Semites go to Shabbat dinners? So I was aware of that risk. And I don't want to act as though that was not uh, something that I was aware of or that was a real concern. But I thought that the potential benefit outweighed it. And that's a decision that I made and a responsibility that I made. And at the end of the day, I had to make the choice. It was no one else's choice. Okay, so you invite him over. (laughs) He's come back. You weren't sure if he was going to come back in the fall. He came back in the fall. I knew he'd come back because when I texted him about if he had a place to stay, he told me that he had rented a room off campus. As you might imagine, the the campus authorities were pretty okay with him moving off campus by that (laughs) point. As far as possible, probably would have been their preference. So I knew he was back. And so when the semester actually began, I had been hosting these Friday night dinners the prior year, and I had a bigger dorm room the second year. So was certainly going to continue that and decided to text him. What are you doing Friday night? Uh And I wasn't trying to ambush him. And so actually before he came over, one thing I told 
all the prospective attendees at the dinner was not to bring up white nationalists, not to bring up race, not to bring up his views. And the reason for that is I didn't want him to go on the defensive, put up his armor, walk out the room and never come back. The reality is he had had those views for his entire life. There's no pithy sentence that I could say that would cause him to do a complete about face and say, oh, actually, my entire life up to this point was wrong. I was such a fool. There's just like our beliefs. You know, you you have many beliefs, I'm sure. You're a committed environmentalist. There's nothing I could say in five words or five minutes or five, even in an hour, probably that would, that would cause that to change. And so I didn't want to have those kind of acrimonious interactions with him, either from me or from anyone else at those dinners. And surprisingly, maybe we found that despite not talking about the elephant in the room, we had a tremendous amount of common ground. We were very interested in a lot of the same things, history, religion, science, literature, and we were able to discuss music. We were able to discuss those things at great length and find that there was a lot of commonality between us. You and, and the whole group? Me and the whole group, but especially between me and Derek. He and I would speak, especially because one of the interesting features of my religious observance is that I keep the Sabbath. What does that mean? Without going into the details, I, I normally don't go to par- I'm not going to parties on Friday night. I'm not going uh, out to restaurants on Friday nights and so on. And as it turns out, Derek was not really welcome at this anxiety. <laughs> and so after people would leave the dinner, you're hanging out. It was just me and him. So we spent a lot of time one-on-one, even after the dinner's talking. Can you share what some of the, like, did any conversations stick out? You know, to be honest, if we had known then that people would be so interested a decade <laughs> later, we would have taken better notes. So it's hard for me to identify one particular conversation. But the overall theme, was that despite having worldviews that were at diametric odds, we were able to develop really a friendship in spite of that. I'm curious. I want to ask how other people saw it, how, what other people talked to you about it. Like what, I'm sure people asked you questions. And, but also, did you notice changes in yourself? Did you notice changes in him? What kind of changes? I mean, he, he's done an about face. I presume, have you done much change? Do you, do you look at white supremacy differently now? No, I don't know that I would say that I look at white nationalism or white supremacy differently now. I'm certainly more aware of it now than I was previously because of my interactions with Derek, especially after he left white nationalism. And we've done some, for example, speaking engagements about it and things like that. So I'm definitely more aware of it than I was that and have, I think, a more sophisticated view of, of those groups than I did previously. But when I say that we were able to find common ground, it doesn't mean that I was able to find redeeming aspects of white nationalism. It is an ideology that, despite what I said before about trying to promote itself as being about heritage, is really not. It's, you know, and, and five minutes spent on the Stormfront message board, I think, will convince anyone of that. But white nationalists, just like everyone else, are human beings. and no matter how reprehensible I may find somebody's worldview or ideology, I don't have the right to treat them with something less than human dignity. Yeah, th- this is something that it's hard to get across. I-, I feel like if you met David Duke or Derek's father, Don, I suspect before your friendship with Derek, you probably would approach them with 
I don't know, hatred or anger or something like that. I'm not sure. And I suspect now it would be with compassion or empathy. I'm not sure again. I mean, you certainly aren't saying that they're idiots or stupid, although maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm misreading. It depends on what an idiot is, I think, a poor approach because obviously there are very intelligent people who have adopted all sorts of horrible positions. There are plenty of very smart people in the Nazi regime. So to say that someone is smart doesn't mean that their ideology is not harmful or destructive. I don't think that my my view before I met Derek was very strongly that we need to treat people with human dignity and that everyone at the end of the day is created in the image of God. And we have, of course, an enormous number of dissimilarities between us. Every person is unique. And uh, you know, at the end of the day, no two people are really carbon copies of each other. But at the same time, because of that shared humanity, I, I felt very strongly before meeting Derek, and I, I feel very strongly today that people should give the appropriate credit to that common humanity, despite the fact that people, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't condemn those kind of worldviews, right? I'm not by any means condoning or, or saying that those things are not as bad as people think, quite the contrary. But the human beings behind them are human beings. You know, it's interesting. I, I've been very fortunate to have some involvement with a nonprofit called Facing History. And Facing History predominantly trains teachers on how to teach topics such as history in a way that is not just about memorizing facts, but which is really reflective mm-hmm. with the idea to make people into upstanders rather than just bystanders. And in that context, looking at history in sometimes conventional ways, I think can be problematic. For example, we mentioned the Nazis. I think it's a complete cop-out to say that Nazis were monsters. And that's why they did the things that they did. Because, of course, a monster does bad things. We're not surprised when we watch Lord of the Rings and the orcs are doing you know, awful huh. stuff. Because they're orcs. It's what they do. But many of the Nazis loved their families, played with their pets, were active in their religious organizations. And yet they committed some of the most atrocious crimes against humanity. Despite the fact that at the end of the day, in many ways, they're very similar to you and me as human Mm -hmm. beings. So I think we have to be very aware of the way that regular human beings, not mythical monsters, but regular everyday human beings like you and me, may be led down roads that cause pain and suffering to other people. And there's one other thing I would point out as well. My mother was an alcoholic and she got sober when I was around eight and I used to go with her to open meetings, open meetings are a meetings that you do not have to be an alcoholic to attend. I wasn't an alcoholic. I was eight, but I met people through those organizations who had been in incredibly dark and destructive places in their lives. People who, for example, had been drunk and run over their own children, killing them as one memorable example unbelievably destructive places. And nevertheless, they had been able methodically through a lot of work to transform their lives and become real beacons of light in their communities, helping other people to get clean and sober, people who are homeless, helping them, etc. And so it was very much in my mind that what a person is today doesn't, isn't necessarily what he has to be in five years. No one is beyond a point of redemption. Yeah. So This starting point for you, are you by any chance, as you're speaking, thinking about environment at all? Because 
I recommend when you when this comes out to listen to the recording and everyone listening, like rewind what you were just saying about the difference between who someone is and how they were raised and how they can be. Because so many people say, oh, look at those people doing this environmental. They're such idiots. Yeah. Why don't they, like the science is so clear. How can they be so ignorant or so stupid or, or hurtful? And in my view, and I don't live up to this nearly to the extent that I could or, or would like to, but to, you know, people have a different view. They're coming at this from a different perspective. We don't know their backgrounds. And you just, as far as I can tell you, once you think the other person is incorrigible or ignorant or stupid, uh, ignorant is uh, stupid, you know, then you lose your credibility and they're not going to listen to you. You, you don't have any ability to influence them. But I feel like people are very quick to call them, maybe monster isn't quite the word that they would use in terms of the environment, but they just write them off. And I think once you write them off and you communicate that through whether you intend to or not, it's going to come out, then they write you off. And now you just have a bunch of people who disagree and aren't talking to each other. Absolutely. And that's why this is leadership in the environment, not telling people what to do in the environment. Because I don't think leadership is telling people what to do. That would be management at best. And in your case, it seems to me that you could have, one thing you could have done was organized marches against white supremacy. And when he got back, gotten in his face and said, there's more of us than there are of you. Get out of here. You're wrong. Go back to wherever. Something like that. I'm not sure. But you didn't. You connected as a human. And what's your influence on the white supremacy or white nationalist movement? I'm, I'm, I, I don't get their newsletter, so it's hard to say. Yeah. <laughs> And Derek probably doesn't anymore either. I think he's been I think he's been cut off from that distribution list as well. But you know, it's worth pointing out that it was not an overnight process. Derek started coming to those dinners in the fall of 2015, and we spent quite a lot of time together, both at those dinners and outside of those dinners. And he didn't renounce white nationalism until the spring, probably May. I'm sorry, he started coming to dinners in the fall of 2011. I got the years mixed up, fall 2011, and he left white nationalism publicly in probably May of 2013. So it was almost two years of coming week after week, spending a lot of time. In that time, he and I had precisely zero discussions about white nationalism. We had zero discussions about anti-Semitism or racism or his ideology broadly. Not that he didn't know that I was aware. It was very much the elephant in the room. But I felt like because of who I am and my background, I couldn't have those conversations with him without it becoming not just confrontational, but combative. That was certainly more true in the beginning than the end. After two years, I probably could have gotten away with a lot more. But it's also worth pointing out, though, that there were people who were having those conversations with him. Alison Gornick, who was interestingly one of the roommates I referenced earlier, who at first refused to even come out of her room during those dinners if he was going to be there, ended up spending a lot of time with him, talking in a very systematic way, trying to understand, not just trying to lecture him, not just scolding him and saying, oh, you're so, you're so bad or you're so dumb, but asking why he believed the things that he believed. You know, it's interesting, Derek is and was a very smart guy. And he felt like there were reasons to believe the things that he believed. And so she asked him, you know, what's your evidence for such and such belief? And he would show whatever he felt was the compelling evidence. And she underwent a tremendous amount of labor, really, in 
explaining why many of those so-called pieces of evidence were mythologically flawed. Many of them were, for example, surveys of statistical things which were taken grossly out of context or to which statistics had been grossly misapplied. And that was a tremendous effort on her part for an extended period of time. And then there was a third component as well. Many people at the school, at the university, were very outspoken in uh, their view, very rightly, that white nationalism was a destructive force. It was not a, a viable alternative viewpoint. And these were many of them people who Derek had known in his first year at the school. So he had grown to respect them during that first year or first semester when he had been in the closet, so to speak. And to see them come out so forcefully and to say that what he was believing and advocating was not just wrong, but was really hurting people's lives, sometimes their own lives, caused a lot of reflection on his part. I don't think you can look at any one of those three components in isolation. It's really a package deal. It reminds me of this two stories in my experience that influenced me a lot. I have a friend who really, the environment is not something he thinks about. Yeah. So I thought, well, you know, I'll show him a couple of facts and he'll figure this out. And I showed him a bunch of facts and he was like, yeah, well, you know, this data, there's some flaws in the data. It could be, you know, misreading. So I said, well, I sent him some more data. And he's like, I don't know if he was looking at the data himself or what, but he kept showing like there's like one point he said, you know, you look at these numbers, but they've adjusted the, the data. And I'm like, well, of course, sometimes you have to adjust it uh, because the instrumentation was misread or something like that. And he goes, whenever they've, mis- whenever they've adjusted, it's always shown greater warming. It's never going the other way. That implies that it's not random. So I'm like, well, that's interesting. That's, I don't really have an answer for that. So finally, I, threw him the, I sent him the whole damn IPCC report calling out a couple of the big graphs. And he, and he kept coming back with like potential flaws in the data and flaws in methodology and things like that. And eventually I was like, I just thought it's just a matter of facts. And then, you know, I just throw facts at him and he'll get it. And in the end, I actually became more, how do I put it? It's not more skeptical, but it's not such a slam dunk. I mean, I, for me, yes, I, I'm totally convinced that the, earth, the, the globe is warming, that it's caused by humans, that we can do something about it. But it wasn't until I was open to hearing from him that he seemed to be willing to hear from me. Things are changing a bit, but I think that I realize it's, it's not a matter of just telling people that they're wrong and showing how wrong they are, and then they get it. There's another friend of mine, and by the way, I do not in any way want to, I don't have any, what's the word, false equivalence between, I don't want to say environment, white nationalism, president. Of course. That, I'm not saying they're the same. Just difference of opinion. That's all I'm, I'm sure. saying here. There's another friend that I've, I've made, and he's been on the podcast. I've been on his, on his show as well too. Uh, Rob, who is a very strong Trump supporter. And in Manhattan, that's pretty rare that someone will wear a MAGA hat. And he's black, which is like another thing that's like not the usual thing. And he and I have become really good friends. And I keep thinking about how I just want to learn to be a, Trump, a strong Trump supporter in Manhattan is not such an easy thing to do. And that tells me that he really cares about something. Part of me is wondering, shouldn't I try to persuade him or influence him? But I haven't gotten around to that because he's an interesting guy. And I like talking to him and learning from him and, and getting different views and just kind of figuring things out. I haven't tried to do what you said. I think her name was Allison was doing, was yes. like researching stuff and coming back and saying, but it's very interesting. I mean, for one thing, one thread that I picked up from him, Al Gore says to act on the environment. Yes. He himself is not acting as much as he could on the environment. 
And it seems that he, it seems fair to say, well, if he believed it, he wouldn't do some of the things that he's doing, but he is doing some of the things that he's doing. Maybe he doesn't believe it. If he doesn't believe it, what's his motivation? Well, he's rich. Could that, could money have something to do with it? Now that line of thinking isn't crazy. It's not my line of thinking, but I can see how that has led me a lot to, that's a big motivation for me to live by my values, which has turned out to be a great joy and great. I I really like it, even though I'm not flying, even though I'm not eating packaged food. And those are things that I used to like to do. Now what I replaced it with, I like more, which I didn't expect that that would happen. So I've learned and grown in ways and it's actually helped me become myself more as a result of, I'm not embracing any of their views. I, I think empathy is a little challenging because it's hard to put yourself in the mindset of someone who does something that you think hurts people. Sure. I suspect you've done a bit of that with the Nazi, the way they describe Nazis. There were people who in the 30s lived in Germany and were just regular people. And by the time the late 30s rolled around, systems had changed them so much that they kind of got swept up. I don't know. You know, it's, it's tough to put myself in the mindset of, of someone in, in those circumstances, but a great many of them must have been regular people that had the world not changed in that way, would never have considered doing anything remotely like what happened. But it's so easy to say monster. They're mo- monsters, I'm not. And, and I should be clear, what I'm saying when I say that they're not monsters is not to say that the behavior is not monstrous. It's not to excuse the behavior. But it's important to realize that what happened there was not such a dissimilar set of circumstances to the ones we find ourselves in maybe today, that the people who are involved were not so different from the people who are living today. There is a very interesting study that was done in a school in Kansas, because there was a history teacher, and it was actually captured later in a German movie called The Wave. Oh, I saw that. So it's an incredible film. Basically, the premise is that this teacher asks the students, do you think these things could happen today? And of course, they say, no, this happened 40, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, whenever the movie was filmed. This is a totally different era. We're very enlightened. Of course, the Germans also had many enlightened philosophers before. So, But mm-hmm. the times today seem so different and so removed from those things. And he shows in a beautiful way how easy, with just a few tweaks, people can behave in very similar, very destructive, horrible ways. So he got the school. Let me jog my memory. The school, he asked the students, could this happen today? And they said, no way. And then he does a few things and gets the school to start behaving that way. Yes, he divides the school. I don't remember all the details, but he divides his class into two different groups or three different, two different groups. One is a very clearly privileged group. And the other group is seen as being denigrated and, and dirty and, and stupid and bad and maybe even a corrupting force. And very quickly in a span which was shocking, they become at each other's throats, these two groups. Groups in which were totally arbitrary, by the way. This was not a, you know, this, this is, it wasn't like it was on pre-existing racial lines or in any other way tapping into pre-existing prejudices. It showed with, I think, remarkable aplomb the susceptibility of human beings to fall into these patterns of hate and anger. And it happened, right? This wasn't a fictional account, maybe dramatized, but... Of course, the movie is a dramatized account, but it was based on it, for better or for worse, unfortunately, on something which was really done at a school in, in, I believe it was in Kansas, but I could be mistaken. So, yeah, it's funny to look at, like, there's lots of things happening today, and we say, well, it couldn't happen what happened in some other place, but they didn't think that either. I'm sure that if you asked a German living in this country in 1930, and you asked him if it was possible what happened 10 years from then, he would think you were completely out of your board. 
And of course, it turns out that we weren't. And so bringing it back to what you were saying before, when, let's say, in the environment, to paint people who are your ideological opponents or even people who maybe seem apathetic to the environment, I think there's probably more of those than people who are really anti-environment, but people who, who are not taking steps to mitigate the effect of climate change, to cast them as doing that because they hate the environment or they just don't care about the, their children's future or their grandchildren's future. I think it flies in the face of everything we know about human beings. Of course, they care about their children and their children's children and the environment at large. But maybe there are other things at play. People, of course, consume different media. We, we can go into why that might be the case. But if you come from a position of ego and say, I am so smart, I know these things, and this guy, he's no good, he's stupid, he's evil, it'll be, I think, almost impossible for you to find any common ground. And without that common ground, it'll be very hard to impart your views, not, not convincing them even, but even just to share them in a, in a way that doesn't result in this contentious environment. If you tell someone something that they perceive as you just telling them off, if I come to you and say, you know, Josh, you, you do this, it's so bad, you do that, it's so, you're so awful. Of course, they go on the defensive and say, no, I'm not so bad, because who is so horrible in their own mind? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you don't understand me. I'm not doing this to hurt them. I'm doing this to help this. And if you don't understand that, then I can't listen to you because you don't know, you're talking to a caricature of me, not me. Absolutely. And I think this is one of the dangers when we are dealing with all sorts of societal ills, uh, and even not ills. Even if you look at the political divide, for example, I think we probably, it's no great secret that in America, there is a tremendous acrimony between the political left and the political right at the moment, perhaps to a degree which we haven't seen in many years. And unfortunately, so often we see on the evening news, the other side being cast as, for example, you know, we want to destroy America, or you want to undermine, you know, we want to support terror or something like that. It doesn't take a very credulous or, or, or gullible person to think that this is not really pass muster. How many people do you know who are like that in your own life? As opposed to people who just have different opinions and different views. Now, some of those views may actually turn out to be very destructive, but it doesn't mean that those people are coming at those views from the intention of destroying things, making the environment worse, hurting other people, etc. It kills me when someone sees someone else's behavior and say they just don't care. Everyone cares. Yeah. How they behave is something is another story. But once they say you don't care, then the person's like, all right, that's the last time I'm going to listen to you. I do think that there is a degree to which you have to build a sense of empathy for other people. It doesn't necessarily come naturally. And so I think that it's not necessarily the case that everyone cares equally, because some people are more empathetic to others, especially when you start talking about others who may be on the other side of the world. It's very easy to be empathetic to your children or to your spouse or to your parents. To say that I should be empathetic about someone on a different continent, it, it seems like it might as well be empathetic to somebody on Mars. But there is a shared humanity there. And to the extent that we think about those people, just like we might think about people living in other times as being other than human in some sense, we have to keep ourselves from falling into the trap of thinking about other people living in our own time as being other than human, just because they live in circumstances that may be very different from my own. And how easily we could be the ones in the other times for some 
I mean, thinking environmentally, we, can, we may be the ones in some that future generations look back on as the bar- barbaric ones with all the plastic and mercury and stuff like that that we're spewing out. I can assure you that the people who we've just discussed as being so problematic don't think that they are so problematic. Yeah. And so it is. it may not be comfortable to say, but it is kind of imperative that we take a good hard look at the mirror and wonder not just what other people are doing wrong that they should be doing better, but in our own lives, what should we be doing differently? Do I really treat people with human dignity all the time? I don't, for sure. Even though I may think that that's what I should do in my own life, the reality is that I fall short almost every day. Do I really do everything that I think should be done to support the causes that I believe in? The answer is no, I don't. But to the extent that I focus all my energies just on other people and say, why are they not doing what I think they should be doing? To some extent, it takes away from my ability to be self-reflective. Yeah, this what you're just saying about self-reflection and your own. To me, the word integrity is is what I'm hearing. Is that if the reason for individual action is not because individual action adds up to so much, although it's the only thing that does, I believe, it's living by your values. It's its own reward, and that's the only way to influence others. And influencing others is if you want change to happen. It's little things may add up, but I think it's leadership is more effective. I think that you hit on an amazing point. It is so easy in so many areas, including environmentalism, feel discouraged because you can look at what you can do yourself and say, my flying or not is really not going to be the the straw that breaks the camel's back. It seems as though even the influence I can have on other people might be so limited as to be futile. But there's, there's a parable I remember very clearly. It was one of my favorite parables I remember growing up that there's a prince, and the prince is born in a palace filled with all sorts of luxuries and, and fun. But at the entrance to the palace, there was an enormous boulder. And of course, the prince is growing up. He enjoys himself. He enjoys all of the pleasures in the palace. But as they go and time goes on, he finds himself unfulfilled. He starts to pray. And much to his surprise, God answers. He asks God, he says, what should I do with my life? And God says to him, push the rock. That's your job in this life, is to, push this, is to push the rock. So, as you might imagine, not many people hear words from God himself. So, he's very excited. He goes and he pushes, he pushes, he pushes. He's sweating and he's exhausted. But he's so excited at the same time, because, of course, he's had such an amazing revelation. But the rock is an enormous rock, and it doesn't move. And the next day, he wakes up. First thing he does, he goes to the rock, he pushes again. But by the end of the day, the rock is in exactly the same place it was when it started. And so every day he becomes a little bit less enthused until eventually he wakes up in the morning, he puts a little pinky on the rock and he goes about his day. Of course, eventually as things go, he passes away and he comes to the upper worlds and God tells him that you failed. He says, what do you mean I failed? I pushed that rock so much with so much effort and so much sacrifice and it didn't move. God says, I never told you to move the rock. I told you to push the rock. I move the rock. It's so easy to be dissuaded when we see how challenging it might be for our actions to move things in the world. But that's really not our job. Our job is to push the rock. That's what's under our control. Yes, of course. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, You'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. 
Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act, and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I halfway want to end right there because that was a, a stirring parable. There's a question I also can't help but ask. When you hear, here's something, a refrain that I hear a fair amount, or like, I don't know if it's a movement or what, but it's like, punch a Nazi, punch a white supremacist. What do you think of when you hear that? I will answer in a couple of ways. First is that I'm opposed to violence in the vast majority of cases, basically outside of self-defense, and find the notion that you are morally righteous for physically attacking those you disagree with to be ridiculous, including if those people who you disagree with may be promoting what really are horrible ideologies, such as white nationalism. The second thing is that I think that it comes down to what we were discussing before. Why is it that a person's reaction to seeing a neo-Nazi or a white nationalist is think to physically attack them as opposed to trying to win them over maybe, or, at the very least, mitigate the harm that they can do. I don't think that anyone's ever left white nationalism because they were punched. And I don't think anyone's ever left any movement because they were attacked. And in fact, quite the contrary, I worry that it will further inflame things because you know it's, it's an interesting phenomenon that I think within white nationalism, and I can speak to white nationalism, but it's probably true of other groups as well, there is a, oftentimes a sense of very strong camaraderie because it's a small group that sees itself as against the world. They think that they have the right view and everyone else is opposed to them. And of course, everyone else pretty much is opposed to them for good reason. But to the extent that you have these violent confrontations, and I might add that these are generally not groups that shy away from violence themselves, mm-hmm. you push people further down paths of extremism. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you said that. I mean, coming from someone who himself did not take that route, again, engaging with someone who would want you dead or want, I'm not sure what you want out of you from your upbringing. I mean, I can tell you, my, my, for example, walking around certain places wearing a kippah is not such a safe activity. I've been spit on, chased. Even when I was young, I remember one time I was in Italy. I was 12. And I was just outside of where you have the Leaning Tower. It's an area called the Square of Miracles. And a group of kids, I mean, when you're 12, a lot of people look bigger than, than they probably look later. They're probably 16, I don't know. And chased me around this group. You know, they have, they have stalls there where people sell food. People chasing me, spitting on me, jeering at me, oinking at me, but calling me a pig. Do you think that that made me change my views? <laughs> But it's also worth bringing something else up in conjunction with that story. There were probably five or six people in that group, but there were a lot of people standing around at their stalls who saw what was happening and did nothing. My guess is that if you ask most of those people if what was going on was right or wrong, they'd tell you that they were firmly opposed, that it was a horrible thing. And at the same time, they did nothing. When I talk about how to address maybe white nationalism, I don't want to get the sense or to give the impression that we should just let it roll off of us and let come what may. There are unfortunately people who are affected and their 
consequent pain and suffering is real. And I don't think that it does anyone any favors to pretend otherwise. By being silent about those kinds of things, we make ourselves into bystanders. And I don't think we want to be bystanders. Matthew, this is just a tremendous conversation. I appreciate what you've been sharing. I'm going to leave an open invitation to come back to this podcast anytime that you're, you're willing and interested. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to, anything you want to leave with, any words directly to the listeners or, or anything I didn't think to ask? You know, there's one thing that I would like to mention in conjunction with, that, with, with our most recent thread of conversation, which is that there is, in my view, an increasing sense of a bubble around people, an ideological bubble around people, where we tend to associate with people who think the same way that we do, both in real life and very much so on social media, on cable news and so on, on both the left and the right, probably. And I think that one of the concerning things is that there is a sense of safety in the consensus. That when we do see something that's going on, that's wrong, that someone's being hurt, that someone's doing something that's really, you know, where we need to stand up for somebody, there's a sense of safety in in not doing anything. And I've seen that in my own life, my childhood, where people were being taunted and I did nothing, right? So I'm hardly a saint. there, There are fascinating studies done, psychological studies, about the power of conformity, where the experimenter will show a panel of subjects, three lines of varying lengths and then another line and ask which of the three matches the one and it's very obvious which one matches it it's not a subtle difference it's you know it's one is one inch one is two inches one is five inches or something it's very obvious but unbeknownst to one of the participants all the other people who are answering are plants they're confederates of the experimenter and so they say the wrong one so if if b is the one that matches you have the first responder says A, and the second one says A, and the third one says A. And by the time it gets to the real subject of the experiment, everyone before him has said the wrong answer. He can see before his own eyes what the right thing is. He sees the right answer is B. Most of the time he says A anyway, because of the power of conformity. But if there's one other person before him who says the actual answer that says B, that power of the of conformity, that power of the consensus vanishes to the extent that we can be powerful enough, maybe in our own lives, to stand up when necessary against the consensus. It can have an enormous impact on how everyone else around us responds to that same situation. Man, Matthew Stevenson, thank you very much. Pleasure to be on. Rarely do I find myself speechless to add to what the guest said. I mean, I just can't think of what to add. All I can say is that I learned more than I expected, and I expected to learn a lot from Matt. I mean, we had great conversations before recording, but I expect to listen to this episode many times over the years. I'll keep in touch with Matthew, too, and I'll bring him back. What I'm trying to work on in leading people I disagree with, he's done longer and more effectively with more personal things at stake. So I look forward to next time. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.